Hello, and welcome to the Everybody Brands Podcast, where we help you build brands, shape your culture, and inspire your team. I'm Brian Soy, principal of Aspire, a design and marketing agency that helps people build thriving organizations and purpose-driven brands through strategy, design, and the story brand marketing framework. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Everybody Brands with Brian Soy, and today I am in a conversation with uh, a colleague from many years ago, about two decades, uh, David Lemley from Retail Voodoo. And David helps build brands that better for you consumers actively crave with their mind, body, and soul. David thrives at this intersection of culture and the outdoors and proves meaningful impact isn't relegated to Manhattan. David helped put the Pacific Northwest on the map as a thought leader in design, working with brands that are ambitious, fearless, and out to change the world. He believes that brands should inspire deep and meaningful connections with real people and enthusiastically do good. So David, welcome to the Everybody Brands podcast. I'm so excited to reconnect with you. Not that it's been 20 years, but we don't connect as often as we should. Great. Yeah, Brian, it's great to be here. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Sure. So, you know, you just published a new book, and why don't you give us a quick overview of that book and um, wh why you wrote it? Sure. So the book is called Beloved and Dominant Brands. And the subtitle is called The Brand Ecosystem That Drives Better For You Brands From One of Many to Category Prominence. And the reason that I wrote the book is that it's a highlight of the very first model we use in our brand strategy development process. And it really is about giving people the tools to conduct a meaningful audit of their brand's position against the competitive set with the intention of asking very introspective questions about the seven musts of marketing that came from Chet Holmes and updating them to be very 21st century focused so that if it emphasizes your brand's why and what you're going to mean to your audience to be. Yeah, so so you found that why to be really um, relevant. And you, you write in the book, consumers need to understand why your brand exists. They want to know what problems your brand and products will solve, what your process looks like, why you make your products, and where you stand on issues they care about. Um, so explain that a little more. You know, I, Simon Sinek wrote about why, Sinek, um, I've written about why in my book. Um, so in, in an age where people are really care more about what's in it for me, are you finding that, pe that consumers are still really tied in with the why? Yeah, absolutely. So the why matters. And it really comes down to this. Anything any brand can make, I can knock off for cheaper. If you prove something exists, and that's the whole idea in the book, there's this notion of, first and only by default because i'm the inventor well then any idea that i have that has any traction at all will be copied by not just startups but by kroger and walmart and amazon they all have private label and they all are looking for proof of concept that your product or your offering is going to be that they can get decent margin on as a private label so that's the name of the game so if I am having something that is basically some form of commodity, anything you can make or think up is going to be commoditized 
because of how savvy society is and how uh, available manufacturing is to anybody. Anybody with an idea can create anything. So what the difference is, is what it means to me and who I get to be when I'm with you. That's what a brand is really about at the center of it. Who I get to be when I'm with you gives me, a consumer, an opportunity to your brand as building blocks of my own personal identity. And as the world turns, having transparency, having a do-gooder mentality, having clean ingredients, having all of that me by association, that halo of do-gooderness. So rather than me going out and being an extremely hardcore do-gooder anymore, I get to be a do-gooder by association of the brands I allow into my life. Right. So the brands you allow into your life, uh, one, become part of your identity, and you identify with them at the same time. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Interesting. So you you talked about, you gave a little bit of a definition of of brand branding. It's, it's of all the world's words in the world. It's probably one that has more definitions than anything else um, based on industry culture perspective. Uh, how do you define branding? Well, I think it's a super squishy and super slippery word. <laughs> yeah. Even in this agency here, people argue about it or misuse it on a daily basis because we all have our own preconceived notions and we were trained to think it was the of burning the mark into the cow so no one could steal it. That's where it came from. But in my definition, brand is the promise you make, the way in which you keep it. So that's you as an organization or as the, the brand get that opportunity. But where it really becomes a brand is when the person who you're making the promise to, the consumer in our world, how they receive the promise, the way they judge you on how you kept it, and the mechanism with which you communicated to them, and the feeling they have in their gut and in their head, that is actually your brand. So it's a feeling. It's a guttural, non-conscious reaction to your promise. That's a brand. Branding is the act of what the promise is and the way in which you're going to keep it. And that could include throwing a logo on the side of a jet, but there's a whole bunch of other stuff that happens way before that. All right. It, does that make sense? Yeah, no, it does. It's, um, yeah, so just differentiating between the idea of brand in and of itself and the, the activity of branding is, is important. Um, because you, know, you work with a lot of large scale brands um, and um, I know you've worked with Starbucks, you've worked with REI, you know, I think a lot of the listeners to the podcast here, they've, they're smaller businesses, so they don't always, you know, we aspire or they aspire to those, that level of activity, but it's not always something they can attain because limited time, limited capacity, limited resources. Sure. Uh, so having, so at least from my perspective, under, helping not, not even small businesses, but any business that isn't going to be at that level, understand that, you know, what the brand is, and it's more than the logo, and it's the, it's the, the feeling, the belief that people have, but it's both of those working together. Um, you know, it's what the story you're telling, it's the promises you make, but it's, it's how your audience receives those. That's so critical to completing, you know, that virtuous cycle. 
Yeah, absolutely, Heather. You got it. I mean, yeah. I think so. Talking about it from a brand and your logo, or brand and logo, and having those be interchangeable. Let's talk about that for just a sec, because in my mind, it's definitely that your brand is not your logo, and the act of getting your logo imprinted upon ten thousand ballpoint pens is also not branding. That is logo application. That's called activation. That's right. A different thing. Branding is all the thinky think and all the planning and the integrity with which you run your business and decide what you're going to make. That is really the art of branding is being mindful and choiceful about the way you're going, the promises you're going to make and the way in which you're going to keep them and, and the guiding principles of that. And then once you have that crystal clear, it also helps inform what you're going to make, what your offering will be, what it should cost, who, who you want to talk to. All of that is branding. And then after you know that stuff, then you get into marketing, planning, and activation. So that could be everything from getting a thousand pens with your logo on it to you decide you're going to hand out samples at such and such. Those are all activations that have very little to do with branding. Right. Right. No, that's an excellent point. It's a great way to explain it. Thank you. Before we get back to our conversation, I have a story to share with you. After I presented the StoryBrand keynote, one participant held out her business card and asked, can you help me? I've read the book, but I'm stuck. I just don't feel like I can figure out my story so people visit my business. So after we helped her create clarity about her cafe using the StoryBrand framework, she confided in me, we need more daily traffic. I haven't updated my website in two years and people can't find our hours online. I'm afraid to make changes and I don't want to pay my developer for simple changes that I should be able to make. I have to rely on Google, which limits my options. Now that her website is on websitesmadesimple.co, the visual website builder that makes it easy for every entrepreneur or business owner to create a beautiful website. Her cafe is getting hundreds of website visitors a week. Her phone is ringing more and people are ordering custom cakes and more from her website. Aspire Websites Made Simple is this visual website builder that helps you build a professional website that grows with your business. Visit websitesmadesimple.co to get started with a free 30-day trial. Choose a beautiful design template to build your site quickly or start with a blank template and customize it to match your brand identity. Websitesmadesimple.co makes building an easy-to-manage website for your business or nonprofit simple and easy. Try Websites Made Simple CO free for 30 days and you can spend less time worrying about your website and more time filling orders so your business grows. So what are some of the, you know, you, you, you have a great perspective on this and it's very clear. What are some of the myths that you encounter around branding other than, you know, the activation part where we're putting our logo on a thousand pens or plastic water bottles that then end up in the, the solid waste stream? Yeah, I am so... <laughs> Well, I think that the biggest myth that I hear with a very high degree of frequency, particularly in the space we play, kind of in the better for you food and beverage space, is you get it's where it's coming in, you got the investors and entrepreneurs and 
the CPG executives who have been brought into that very entrepreneurial space to kind of try to blow something up. In that particular space, we hear a lot of, yeah, we want to redo our branding and um, we need packaging in 30 days. And so what they really are saying is, I need a new package design. And that is not branding. Mm-hmm. So design is an intentional act of trying to create a vessel that sums up your features and benefits in a way that helps you create category uh, norms or helps helps you establish that you fit within the category norms and then helps you determine how to buck those or how to stand out from those. So it's that act, but it, that begins way back at brand. It's not branding in and of itself. Creating package design is more complex than sticking your logo on a ballpoint pen because there are features and benefits you need to cover off. There are some storytelling opportunities, but you need to do all of the thinking about what you stand for and understand your why and competitive analysis and marketing and opportunity analysis and audience analysis, which in our world all fall under the act of branding before you get to design translation. So that was a very long way to say the biggest thing we encounter still today is that many people are tactics focused and think that the ideology will sort of get sprinkled in at the end like icing. And in reality, the cake looks like this. It's all thick, heavy thinking about your morals and values and principles and product offerings and who you want to deliver that to. And design is the icing on that cake. Or design translation is the icing on that cake. When you've got that dialed, you're playing a different ball game than if you're just trying to have the whatever's cool this year. Agreed. Yeah, and, and you went right where I wanted to go with that is we both see, I'm sure, everybody wants to jump to the tactics first. You know, you, you know, the phone rings, you get an email, it says, we need this, this, and this, and they give you a list. Um, you know, in your example, you, they said, we, we want to focus on our brand, but we want to do a package. It's, they're two different things. And I think it's, it's, it's human nature that people just want to do versus focusing on the B part. And that's, you know, it's, it's the thinking, the being of the essence of a brand. And I know for a lot of people, those are squishy words, um, especially the kind of the essence idea. So that's why I think the idea of brand promise is so strong because we all make promises every day where we say, we're going to do this. And if you don't do on it, you broke the promise. Or if you don't do it, you broke the promise. So that's what we as companies do every day. Um, And it leads to trust, right? It is. And trust is such a huge buzzword, but it is the thing. As we were talking in the preset before we turn on the mic, that is really the key thing in that B2B relationship is it's got to be about human dignity and say X and do X. Because if you say X and you do Y or Z and you don't address it, there's no credibility there. Exactly. And that, that then starts to, uh, starts to erode our authenticity. And that's something you talk about in, in the book a little bit. Um, and I, I like, I, I like to say, you know, if we're not being authentic, we're being fauxthentic. And there's, <laughs> and there's, well, think about it. there's so many brands that are that are you know inauthentic and fauxthentic. Just a, a more fun way to say it, where they they say they stand for one thing, and all of a sudden you see a commercial 
that goes completely in a different direction for what they've been telling you for the past year or four years. And, and who knows where that disconnect was somewhere in a brand manager's mind between that seemed like a good idea at the time and the agency convinced us to do it. And all of a sudden they're doing, um, they're having to do PR that you talked about as one of the part of your, your pyramid um, PR to reverse a conversation that shouldn't have never started. Yeah. Country. Yeah. Um, so thinking about, you know, brands, what do you tell someone who doesn't believe their brand is a valuable business asset? Well, I, I gently and lovingly encourage them to wake up to the modern world because <laughs> anybody who doesn't think their brand is a valuable business asset is going to be selling on price. Because your brand, in fact, business schools have come out and it's in the uh, close to the 90th percentile now that business schools are saying brand is the only sustainable business tool you have because everything else is changing so rapidly. But your brand, meaning what people think about you based on the promises you make, works on Amazon, works in direct consumer, works at JCPenney and works at the, out of the back of the truck. It's, it's all of all of that, it still hangs there. So for whatever future business models there could be, brand is still the only true thing because humans are looking for meaning. So we talk about that. We also can show them the business case for brand being an incredibly valuable asset. If you think about, um, let's just pick like the nutrition energy bar space as an example. There are so many players. When you walk into any grocery store, whether it's the... Kroger down the street or the Safeway or the Wawa or any of everything, even Whole Foods, there's a wall of nutrition bars in every single one of them. Mm -hmm. So who in their right mind would go make one? <clears throat> well, so think of our X bar as an example. That bar languished and languished and languished until they got really crystal clear on their promise that we have six ingredients and we're going to keep them clean. And then they went to a design team who translated that into the look that we all know and love, which took that organization from being worth about $8.50 in whatever, whatever ingredients they had to it was sold for $600 million a couple of years after getting yeah. their story. So that is a, just a, one modern example of the value of brand as a business asset. Fantastic. Yeah. And we have seen that as well. Um, you know, one of the stories, and this is nothing we had anything to do with, but some Dennis Hahn shared how Microsoft bought Skype essentially for the name and then put the Skype name on their own product. So, you know, in, in every, everyday life, you would think, oh, they bought the software but they bought the reputation They bought the familiarity with their name. So it comes down to, this is something I've been giving a lot of deep thought to is this idea of the one thing we buy and sell. I mean, really not, it's not even the product. It's the value that we as consumers hold for that product or service. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And then we associate that value with the brand. Um, and that, I mean, and that goes to anything. We were, we were dinner the other night and my wife asked, well, how could they charge this much for that food? 
and the, you know, it had to be like, well, there are people who value that type of food, so they're willing to pay that price for, I think it was arepas. So it was either Venezuelan or Colombian food. And we were just a little surprised at how much the arepas cost or, you know, a simple rice bowl. But we, it was the value in that you can't get that anywhere else in that level of authenticity of the style of food, the way it was prepared, the way it was served. Um, so we had a very lively discussion over dinner as to all of that. That's cool. It's, so it's the experience, right? So again, just saying this, it's said a different way. So they made you a promise that you're going to have an authentic Venezuelan experience. You come in and you're thinking, well, it's going to be some rice and some spice and some thing, but you that's not actually what you think. That was just your cognitive dissonance kicking in because while you're in there, you already went into the to the restaurant with an expectation of having an experience. So you're paying for the experience. And there's also something about anchor pricing in there as well. The concept of anchor pricing is like this. If it's too inexpensive, you dismiss it as an inauthentic experience. Mm -hmm. like you don't go to the dollar store looking for uh, grass-fed, clean ingredients, beef jerky. You go to the dollar store to get whatever jerky is available. Right. Because your expectation is it's going to be a buck if it's five dollars for jerky at the dollar store. I'm out. But if I'm <laughs> foods and I'm buying beef jerky, I expect it to be five ninety nine and up, and it better have six certification icons on it, and I'd be able to be able to know that the farmer or the rancher knew the cow personally, and all. So it's a different set of expectations, all which ladders back to what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. It's expectation getting that experience that I have. And um, again, in your case of the restaurant, it was that one moment of, well, why is rice so expensive? And it's because of all of the other expectation and expectations and parameters that the brand made to make the promise to you that it would be authentic. Well, that's a great explanation. And I'll make sure she listens to this part of our conversation. <laughs> yeah. Um, so just when you said experience, it reminded me, you, you reference um, Joe Pine and Jim Gilmore in your book uh, from the experience economy, which interestingly enough, um, we got my invite here to their new launch fest for the, which takes place about 28 miles from my office for the next I'm release. I'll be jealous of that. Uh, it's up the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, yeah? It is, it is. I am a Joe Pine uh, super fan. Okay. I don't get to go to that though. I, I can't make it, but he has, uh, I, I don't know if you've ever spoken to him or not, but he's pretty brainiac. Is he? I have not spoken with Joe, but I know Jim. Uh, okay. Jim Jim's from the Cleveland area. So we've, we've gotten together a couple of times and um, had some conversations and it's always really interesting to, so. Yeah. So next. I, I was going to just share a little thing about uh, Joe. So I met Joe the first time because I started reading his book and, and inadvertently started talking about the experience economy way back 20 years ago. And I wrote about it in one of my first articles and didn't credit him. And he sent me this very gracious, lovely note saying, Mr. Lemley, this is a really fantastic fantastic article and I can see that this sentence you pulled is from 20 page 28 of my book and I instead of being like oh crap I'm in trouble we started this really lovely dialogue and he realized that 
I would make a good disciple. And I was already, you know, telling everybody about his book more so than you could ever know. I just had not, the one time I was brave enough to write back then that I didn't credit him because it came out of my mouth without talking about the book. It was talking about the movement of the experience economy. So we have been stayed in touch over 20 years. And when they wrote the book, Authenticity, I was all over it. And um, I, anyway, just have kept in touch. And so getting a chance to actually interview him for my book was kind of on the same vein for, I think, normal people of like maybe meeting their rock star icon. Yeah, fantastic. It's a, uh, yeah, I mean, they worked, they just together, I mean, they, they offer such different perspectives. Um, and, and I've been, I was able to attend something that Jim Gilmore shared a perspective on about how, you know, the economy continues to drive toward the idea of mass customization and the way he showed and demonstrated mass customization using a roll of masking tape was just astounding uh, where we all, I mean, basically quadrant off the circle and we all ended up in our own little slice. And at the end of that, you know, it was, everybody's just mind blown <laughs> about uh, how that works. And it, was, and it wasn't even a business group. It was business leaders, but it was not a business focus at that time. So, so a question I've been uh, wrestling with uh, is the idea of if a business owner has to choose between branding and marketing to pursue over one over the other, which should they pursue first? Well, so the caveat to answering this question would be, money or budget is a little bit like oxygen. If you don't have any, you're going to start to get lightheaded. So, <laughs> okay. so let's say you have a budget and you haven't to decide. So the reason I say that is because there are things, depending upon what compelling events are coming down your path and how much time you have before you need whatever it is to have an ROI. So if you need money in 30 days, market what you got. If you need money in 60 days, market what you got. But if you're playing to play big and you want to own a space and command an onlyness within a market, start with branding. Abraham Lincoln said, if you gave me 25 minutes to chop down a tree, I would spend the first 20 minutes sharpening the ax. And that's what thinking about your branding is versus marketing blindly is. Oh, great answer. Um I'll add that one to the list of of of, of, of answers that I'm collecting. So Good. it's fantastic. Yeah. Can't wait um, to read your book. Pardon me. I can't wait to read your new book because oh, you know. yeah, that that's coming out in a, probably next year. Or so, um, and really, you know, you you said you so you wrote the book. You you do you also write regularly in terms of articles, blog posts? I do. I I have. Uh, I've done all sorts of different things. I've, I've gone from having a newsletter where I publish uh, bi-monthly. So that's still there. You can actually learn from us at our website if you're interested, sign up to receive insights in your inbox. And we write those every two weeks, they come out. But I also started writing for places like Nutritional Outlook and Adweek and whatnot. And I don't, don't do that with any um, commitment to a how many times I'm going to do it per year, but the discipline of writing for those different audiences has forced me to crystallize my thinking in ways I could have never imagined. Like when you're talking to Adweek, 
it's a whole bunch of people and 85% of them are cynics because they do what we do. Versus if you're talking to, or if you're writing for Nutritional Outlook, you better know your poop about food and nutrition and supplements or whatever it is you're touching on because half of those people are food scientists and nutritional people and doctors. So it's a completely different, same, can tell the same kind of story, but you have to know your audience and you have to understand what's important to them. So the discipline of being well researched in both of those camps has made me a much stronger writer. Great. And who is the audience for um, Beloved and Dominant Brands? So the audience for Beloved and Dominant Brands is really this. Entrepreneurs, investors, and executives who are hell-bent on making the world a better place to change the food system and wellness and fitness for the better. And the reason that I wrote the book is that, again, my, my wife and partner, Diana, we chose to take the name of our process, Retail Voodoo, from the days of Lemley Design and put it on the, the nameplate and put Lemley Design as the intel inside the organization as a chance to, to really focus on this category, this, this narrow vertical. And when we started, people thought we were crazy. What do you mean? You're going to help organic farmers? You're, you're going to do what? You're going to make Cheetos good for you? Like people just laughed us out of the room. And at that time, it felt like nobody had any uh, revenue to put towards actually doing what we do. But we had tried all these things, all of these big, giant, world-class brands and had traction. So we felt like it was time to disrupt that and bring these tools to those people. Well, now we're seven, eight years into the Better For You Organic and Natural movement. And we all know it's a thing because you can walk into Safeway and they have a natural section. Or if you walk down a cover aisle, there's, you know, they're, I think, the third largest organic buyer now. So it's proof that it's normalized. And that the fact that I can even talk about grass-fed beef jerky with me and you didn't laugh at me tells me that, you know, that the movement's happening. So um, it's helping those people who want to push it even further, who are ready to stomp on the gas and take over, or they want to get into the place where um, they have an opportunity to change culture. That's really who we wrote the book for. And we wanted to give them really a world-class tool. So basically what we decided to do when writing the book, and you and I talked a little bit about this before, you know, we want to write a book because there's a reason, there's some credibility that comes allegedly from it. But really what we chose to do over here, we consciously decided to move the free line. We write all the time. I write all the time. I, I speak, I do all that sort of stuff. And I'm in front of clients all the time. But what we did is actually take the first tool in our process and give it away. If you read this book, you will be able to conduct a category audit that will make you ask 75 to 100 questions of your organization that you have probably never asked. And by moving the free line, we are democratizing and therefore hopefully making the next generation of brands that much stronger. Mm -hmm. Which is... You're looking at a longer-term play. You're, you mentioned culture earlier and what we do as, as, as creative professionals is we shape culture. So you've taken it. And again, you move that line by free line. I'm assuming you, you know, the point at which you give away something for free, you move that down and, and you're right. I mean, you've got, this book is just rich and packed with not only the theory, but you give practical examples of companies that are doing it well, which I love because it's easy for you know people 
that I would give the book to, for instance, and I can already, already think of one of our clients who would benefit very much from that because their perspective is, it's not about what they make, it's about the way they want people to live their lives. Mm -hmm. And uh, to be able to say this would be a fantastic supplement to their all, already strong and what they consider to be a beloved brand, just to make it that much stronger. Um, so I want to ask a couple more questions here because I, I know you're busy. You're doing some great work. I'm sure you're getting ready for the World Book Tour, right? It's coming. Yeah. <laughs> great. Um, we talk, you know, talk a little bit about, we've talked a little bit about story. Um, so how can brands be a more effective at, as either Nord, sorry, Nord, narrative storytellers, which is essentially you know, being a promise keeper? How can, how can they do a better job of, of using story to keep promises? That is a fantastic question. And I think that it begins with, it's way up front before you open your mouth. You have to decide what promises you're going to make, how you're going to keep them, and then how you're going to tell people that you kept them. So before you get into any creative translation or marketing outreach or activation, if you know what that is and you know who you are as a brand, why you exist in this world, and who you're talking to, the archetype with which you decide to tell your narrative should help you deliver a story that lets people know you kept the promise without saying it that way. Yeah. And, you know, an archetype, you, know, you and I are familiar with that word. Not everybody is. Why don't you just explain a little bit from your perspective what a uh, an archetype is okay it's a, it, it could be a whole uh show yeah it could be <laughs> well it wouldn't be the expert that's the key thing i but i could talk about it for an hour because uh, um, uh, it's just something that i've studied my my whole life uh so basically the notion of an archetype comes from carl young mm -hmm. he's a psychologist everybody knows you've heard of young in psychology and there's all these things, oh, Freud and Young and my mother and all that sort of stuff that everybody jokes about. But basically, Carl Jung established for psychotherapy purposes that there are 12 main characters in any narrative. And these have resonated throughout Western civilization. What made it very interesting is there was this guy, Joseph Campbell, who was all about the unconscious and the collective dream and all these sorts of things. He proved that Carl Jung had it right and that the idea of these 12 characters transcended language. In fact, they were the same 12 characters cave paintings. So that means it, it transcends writing and language and it's burned into who we are. So humans are meaning-making machines. Having 12 main characters helps us make sense of the insanity of being alive and running around in life, whatever, modern life, whether that was a thousand years ago or today. So that is why they exist. And marketers got a hold of it in order to help give brands some humanity. And I think that that is where we use it, is to say, okay, well, if we're gonna be a do-gooder archetype, does it make sense that we're gonna be like a wise wizard like Yoda? Or if we're gonna be a do-gooder archetype, would it make more sense for us to be like a hero or a warrior like Mickey? And you kind of think about that and say, well, the end user, what do they want from us? The consumer, the person we're trying to keep the promise to, would they be more open to hearing it from a sage or a little green badass who might hurt you if you mess with them, but may look completely harmless otherwise? Or do they want a warrior hero? Because again, 
your brand and the way you keep your promises, who I get to be when I'm with you, the brand. So the archetype is part of how you choose to keep the storytelling meaningful. Yeah. You know, and it's also, it says, it's who you, I want to be when I'm with you, but it's also who I want to become. So the brand inspiring people to become something greater than themselves. Um, you know, interesting. Um, you know, and there's, I think there's two other aspects there in terms of this brand, the archetype and the brand personality behind it. There's the, um, there's the strength of the brand and there's the expression of the brand. Those are also two very um, core pieces of those archetypes that are in a sense below the surface. You don't always see them, but you sense them, you feel them. Um, you, you sent, you, they're part of the promise, but they're not maybe always explicitly stated. You just, you didn't know they're there and you trust that or they're not there and you sense something's not quite right. Um, so yeah, the, the archetypes are fascinating. Uh, if, if, I'm, I'm sure there's one or two books. I think you also, you know, you talk about meaning, Viktor Frankl's um, book on meaning is another one. So we should get them all in the same room together. Conversations. Meaning book? Is it one you're talking about? Making Meaning? Making Meaning, yeah, by Viktor Frankl. Okay. Yeah. All right. So it's as you talk about it, this, in the book, the last pick, like that conclusion of the book, it actually shows our whole process, this guy, and it shows that the seven months of marketing are above the waterline and all this stuff we've talked about, about how to decide your promise, that's all below the waterline. That's that heavy tissue work that an organization needs to do in order to have their marketing outreach be really effective yeah so for everybody who's not read it or listening it's page 126 and it's uh you call that it? yeah i've got it here on my well i've got it here on my um my screen so it's the i'm looking at the pdf okay yeah so it's the brand quadrumid exactly you made up a word quad that's yeah, awesome so in this office, we made that word. It says there's four triangles, quads. It could be a pyramid with four sides, but it really is the quadrumid is three of them are below the waterline and the seven musts are above the waterline. They're, they are where you spend money to do outreach, marketing as it were. <clears throat> and everything else happens below the surface and is how, where why comes from. Yes, I'm just thinking. Probably see is in there. You can see it's in one of the quadrants, in the middle of one of the. Triangles. It is. It's part of the soul. Um, so this is really interesting. I think you and I need to have another conversation about um, actually measuring brand personality and how that can influence type and choice of archetype. Yeah, I'd be. I'm game. Yeah. So great. So the last question um, I just want to ask is, uh, can you give us, well, give us a, an, one example of, you know, your favorite brand that's doing this successfully. You give a bunch in the book. Um, so there's probably one that you've worked with that you just has been a favorite. That is telling a really great story that. Well, that's, that's um, delivering, that's delivering on the promise they make. Okay. Uh, I didn't expect that question. So, um, Sorry. <laughs> so, so many that I think an easy one 
that I that I did not work on that I happen to be a super fan of is I think Bulletproof, the brand of you know MCT oils and coffees and all of that sort of stuff and you know cryogenic freezing and all that. I think Bulletproof delivers a promise of a stronger you who can go out and be more of you. Hmm. Is delivering that promise really, really well through tone and voice messaging product offering. The one thing I would say about them, while I love them madly, and they're not a client, I would be happy if they were, but they're not. And, and the reason they're not is because they don't need us. But the one thing that they have not done as incredible of a job of is um, ingredient integrity. So if they could get their ingredient integrity to be as high as some of our other clients, I would, uh, I would probably have to mortgage my house to buy all their stuff, but I would. Because I believe in what they stand for and how they're doing it. And the way they keep the promise is so great. Yeah. Well, sorry for springing that question on you. It's all good. Yeah. Well, uh, so tell, tell the listeners how they can get in touch with you and your, your website, social media, anything. Yeah. I think the best place, check out retailvoodoo.com. If you want to sign up for insights, you can do that in the learn from us section. All of these newsletters and articles that Brian and I talked about today are under the insights section. If you want to get the book, Beloved and Dominant Brands, that is available on Amazon. Yep. Is retail voodoo one word? Uh, in the URL, it's true. It's hyphenated. Hyphenated. Okay. Yeah. So that's retail-voodoo.com. It's a great name. Um, I've known David since he was Lemley Design. Um, someday we'll tell you about the strange way we met <laughs> in that, in that uh, mastermind group. In, in Vegas, yeah? No, that was in oh, Nashville. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's in, a whole episode, right? Okay. Yeah, that is another episode. Well, so we'll come back and revisit this. Um, so, David, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate that. Um, I, I love learning from you, and I uh, declare that you've just given so much deep thought to this that this is going to benefit a lot of, of readers um, when they get a copy of your book and right. dig into that process that you so generously shared with the world. Awesome. Well, Brian, thank you so much for having me. And again, I can't wait to read your book and let's find another time to talk about another topic. Absolutely. Since I became a StoryBrand certified guide, I've helped dozens of leaders unify sales teams and grow their business with clear messaging that helps customers understand why they should engage, donate, and buy. StoryBrand is a proven model that helps teams and leaders communicate with clarity, connect with customers, and grow their sales. It's a sure way to get everyone on your team to speak in one voice with a clear and consistent message. So if you need help defining your focus and creating a clear message so your marketing starts to produce, contact Aspire at aspire.com storybrand. That's A-E-S-P-I-R-E dot com slash story brand so you can stop wasting money find the clarity you need and start growing your sales thanks for listening to the everybody brands podcast from brian soy you can find more content like this at aspire.com and in the forthcoming book everybody brands how storytelling helps companies and customers build brands that people love 
In the meantime, look for books by Brian Soy on Amazon.com and discover resources to help you build powerful brands that inspire and engage at aspire.com slash resources. That's A-E-S-P-I-R-E dot com slash resources. Music from this episode is the track Wrong by Dan Hennig, found on youtube.com slash audio library slash music. 